Hey, what's happening, everybody? My name is Rick, and I'll be your guide on this little journey to get your true crime and paranormal fix. We'll be talking about everything from monsters in the closets to monsters next door. So make sure you keep an eye on your neighbor, you look under your bed, you check your closets, because the stuff of nightmares starts now. Warning. This episode may contain graphic descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Every day, people all over the world encounter things they cannot explain, things that terrify them, and things that defy logic. But not everything can be rationalized. Not everything has a logical explanation. Not everything can be proven by science. In fact, according to Dr. Ethan Seigel, when it comes to science, proving anything is an impossibility. It is a theory based on a lot of evidence to validate a specific idea over a period of time. He states, nothing in science can ever truly be proven. It's always subject to revision. If that in fact is the case, why are some people so skeptical of things that cannot be explained? Over the years, dozens of plant and animals thought to be extinct have been identified. Just last year alone, California Academy of Science researchers discovered 71 new animal and plant species. So is it out of the realm of possibility that people are seeing cryptids, UFOs, ghosts, and Bigfoot? To those that have seen or experienced these unknown phenomena, it is real and terrifying. Many choose to keep their experiences to themselves for fear of being ridiculed or ostracized. Many are looking for validation from others to ensure that what they saw or experienced was truly real and not just in their head. And then there are those that know what they experienced and want to help others by sharing their experiences. These are their stories. I grew up in Pennsylvania where the summers are hot and muggy and the winters are usually cold and snowy. Now the older I get I'm noticing that the cold and snow really suck. If it were up to me I'd be living in a sunny coastal community right by the ocean. I'm a beach person. Probably because growing up, most of our vacations were to upstate New York. My dad was a heavy equipment operator for a construction company, and during the summer, he worked from sunup to sundown. It never really gave us a chance to vacation in the summer. We had family that lived in Tonawanda, New York, so our vacations were generally to head north for winter vacations. We went from cold and snowy to colder and snowier. My dad loved the cold and snow, so much so that they even took a cruise to Alaska. Now Alaska, that's definitely not where I want a vacation. When I think of Alaska, I think of untouched wilderness, snow, and cold. Now I'm not saying Alaska is not a great place to visit. From the pictures I've seen, it's an extremely beautiful state. It's just not for me. Alaska is the largest state in the U.S. with over 663,000 square miles in area with 14.2% of that area as water. It is about one-fifth the size of the entire lower 48 states, with a population of just over 736,000 people. Now just think, the area of Pennsylvania alone is 46,055 square miles, with a population of 12.8 million people. Now one would think, with that amount of land to population ratio, crime would be very low, but you'd be wrong. Alaska has the third highest crime rate in the U.S. Property crime makes up about 79% of crime in Alaska, and violent crime makes up about 21%. 
Alaska is also known as bear country and one of the few places you can find all three species of North American bears. The brown bear, also known as a grizzly, the black bear, and the polar bear. Combined, there are 134,000 bears in Alaska, 137,500 if you include the Kodiak, which only live on the islands of the Kodiak Archipelago. That comes out to one bear for every 21 people that reside in Alaska. If that's not bad enough, Alaska is known as the land of the midnight sun. The northernmost parts of Alaska get up to 22 hours of sun per day in the summer. Barrow, for example, from early May to June, has the midnight sun in the summer and two months of complete darkness in the winter. If that's not enough to drive you out of Alaska, and the bears and crime don't scare you away, what would? These are all things we know about Alaska. But what about the things that we don't know? The things that are talked about behind closed doors, in hushed tones by the natives. The things that they were told to fear by their ancestors. What would make you believe in the unbelievable? Hi, this is Mike. I live in the Midwest. And what I'll be doing is talking about three different incidents that happened to me over a two-year period while up in Alaska, where I served with the United States Army. I was in the Army from 1981 to 2001 when I retired. And these three incidents stand out probably first and foremost at the front of my memory, especially the last one because that one remains unresolved. So if there's any hints or anybody that's got a full explanation of what happened, I would be more than welcome to hear it. Thank you. It was um, in the summer up in, uh, I was up in Alaska in the military and I was on midnight shift because we were on pretty much a drawdown where Everybody was on a skeleton crew because the summer's up there. The uh, land of the midnight sun and everything, as they call it. Nobody wanted to be stuck working, so everybody was on vacation or on leave time. So I was working mids, and I was sitting out. This would have been early July, I remember, because uh, everyone had told me a couple of days before when I wanted to buy fireworks, they said, don't waste your money because the sun doesn't set and you won't see them. So I didn't bother with that. So I know it had to have been early July before the 4th, uh, possibly even the end of June. But I was on the midnight shift. I had area two, which was out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody loved that assignment at night because it was so boring. And the only thing you would do is security checks on buildings. You had the officers uh, club and you had the credit union. You had a couple of um, office buildings up around that area. But for the most part, it was just driving a lot of back roads, a lot of wooded roads, gravel roads. And you could actually go for hours and not see another human being. Well, I pulled off um, the road to a large shoulder area and needed to catch up on my report because you have to justify your time on the road and that's done with the patrol report so you log in security checks and to make sure the report's perfect you always take your time and fill it in later you just take little scrap notes saying okay i went to this building at this time 
and then you formalize it in the report later on. Well, here I was parked on the shoulder of the road, uh, well off the road, and I had signed out the radar gun. And if I remember right, it was one of the old K-band radar units where you had to strap it onto the dashboard. And I'd run some radar out on the main road and zilch. Couldn't even see a car, let alone somebody speeding. So I'd forgotten to shut the radar unit off and drove out there, parked, and got my lunch out. I was eating my lunch and filling in the report. And I think it was probably maybe about 2.30, maybe a little earlier when I pulled off there. And it seemed like maybe 15 minutes later, all of a sudden the radar just, it's just started screaming. Because the faster an object is moving, the higher the pitch on the radar unit. That's why a lot of cops are actually, when they're skilled in running the, the old radar units, they wouldn't have to look at the radar unit. You could tell by the, by the sound level as to what the speed of the target vehicle was. Well, I got the super high-pitched sound I'd never even, I'd never heard it that loud before. And I looked down at the radar unit and it was flashing 83 miles an hour because I had 55 set in for a target speed where it would alarm off if anybody was going 55 or faster. That was what we called the lazy setting on the radar, so you don't have to constantly watch it. Well, I'm sitting there and I see it going 83 miles an hour and I'm like, what the heck? It was like the closest it was to dark up there and that would have been dusk. I mean, you couldn't see the sun, but you could see in the horizon where the sun was and it was about to rise again. And I was like, what in the heck? And before I could even realize what was going on, the target speed's 83. And then I heard a loud crashing noise. So I put everything down quick, threw the car into gear, and took off. I had the window down. And I remember because I put on like an extra dose of mosquito repellent. Because the mosquitoes up there were horrible. And I'm driving down the road probably 40, 45 miles an hour looking for any signs of a vehicle that had gone off the road. And next thing I know, I'm like at the stop sign. I'm like, well, no, that was a curve in the road. So the car couldn't have been that far down because I wouldn't have picked it up on radar. So I turned around, came back, driving even slower, listening to, you know, if I could hear anything like maybe a car on fire or somebody screaming for help. I was looking for any disturbance in the bushes where a car would have gone off the road, skid marks uh, in the gravel. I couldn't find anything. So I was like, huh, I don't know. Well, they, I, when I went through the radar training, they told us that sometimes there's anomalous error, uh, anomalous areas. And what those are, you just have to put down in your checklist that you know about those. For instance, if you're running radar and you pick up a roof vent that's spinning, it'll look like the roof is going 28 miles an hour 
or trees are going 80 some miles an hour. So I said, oh, that's what it was. It was tree leaves that I picked up moving. Well, I was happy with that, but then I thought, well, no, what about the crashing sound? So I got off duty at the end of the shift and I turned in the radar unit and I remember the desk sergeant tapping his fingers on the, on the counter. And he told me, he says, you know, specialist, you're supposed to have a whole stack of tickets with that. You're supposed to have at least 10 tickets. In a 12-hour shift, he said, you should have 15 tickets. And I said, well, tell, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a graveyard out there. Tell the people that are driving to speed then or something. I said, but nobody was speeding. I said, there was no traffic. But anyway, we went into the squad room to talk over, hey, was there any problems? Was there any concerns? We're all having coffee. And there was nothing. And I mentioned to the patrol supervisor, I said, yeah. I says, I picked up a target out on River Road. I said, uh, northeast of the uh, ski lodge road. And I said, it was showing 83 miles an hour. I said, then all of a sudden I heard like a scraping noise, the car going off the road and a loud crashing sound. As I drove all over the place, couldn't find anything. He just kind of, I don't know, he kind of smiled, I guess. Then before we were, we were, all of us were about to leave, get on the uh, van to go back to our unit from the police station. He motioned for me to come with him. So we went down to the traffic office and the sergeant in charge of the traffic office asked me to tell him what had happened. I did and he picked up a, a file that was laying on his desk. I didn't recognize the file. It wasn't a military police file. And when he flipped it over, I saw that it was Alaska State Police. It was dated, I believe, it was like nine years prior. And he said nine years ago, he said around 2.46 in the morning, he said somebody reported that they saw smoke. And I think it was probably the air, airfield control tower because they had a good view of everything. Um, but they reported smoke. The fire department got out there and found that it was a vehicle that had driven off the road. And the skid marks, they said, were massive where they'd lost control, had hit the brakes and just slid. Uh, but the car had crashed through a bunch of brush and like small trees and finally went through into a clearing where there was a couple of large trees and it crashed the car crashed into the large tree caught fire turns out it was a teenage couple in there and they said well from the time that the smoke was spotted that they're guesstimating and that's what they they came out and said they estimated that the time of impact would have been about 2.41 a.m. And they asked me, what time did I hear the wreck? And I said, well, I started parking out there. I says I parked out there probably about 2.25, maybe 2.30. I said, I says, it couldn't have been. I said, maybe I says, before. I said, I didn't really note the time. And I says, but yeah, it would have been about 2.40. I says, 2.41 when I heard it. And I said, that's when I started looking. And that's when they told me this. Well, that's when the crash happened. And it was on a Thursday night. 
And I'm like, oh, great. It was a Thursday night, Friday morning. I'm like, oh, terrific. I said, so you're telling me I heard a ghost crash? Is that it? And they said, yep, some people do. They said, people that have been out there, they said, have actually heard that. They said, we've run, we've had people out there that have run radar before and picked up a strange target going 80, 83, or 88 miles an hour. That's when I was like, oh, terrific. And they said, yeah. They said, a lot of people out there never hear anything, see anything. But there's a few that'll hear something. He said, we've had some people that have seen something. He said, we've had people that have seen and heard something. And that's when he flipped the jacket back over uh, to the back. And he said, there you go. And he put a tick mark down there. And it looked like there was maybe, there was over 20 because the four tick marks with the line through it, there were already four of those. So it was 20 some. I asked him what was that. And he says, every time somebody sees something that we hear about it, we put a tick mark. And I was like, great. I never asked for that area again. Uh, everybody always loved that area because you didn't have to do anything. And if you were going to college, you could catch up on a lot of college reading uh, reports or you could do homework assignments. I mean, because it was just nothing to do in that area on mids. But I remember a couple of days later, I did go out to the approximate area where the crash would have been. And I said some prayers for the two kids. But uh, I... I've seen accidents before, but none like that one. As I looked at the photos from the accident report, they were absolutely horrendous. The two teenagers had burned to death in the car. They were, I mean, I think the car rolled over and trapped them inside, crushed down. And then that's when it caught fire. And it was just, it was horrendous to see those. I can imagine. That's not necessarily something you would ever want to witness i guess you had the better experience and not actually having to go to the actual accident so when you say it was like dusk there is it when it gets dusk there uh would people normally use headlights uh yeah they do okay because it's like the sun is set just below the horizon because I know like the longest day of the year, the 21st of June, a bunch of us even stayed up to watch it. You could see the sun dip down and just the top of the sun. And you're saying like, eh, yeah, it's going to fully set. No, it's not. It came right back up. So that's all part of the 30 days of now. I guess that wouldn't be the 30 <laughs> yeah. days of night. No, the 30 days of light. It's yeah. the, you know, the opposite. Uh, that was way, way up north. We had daylight all winter long, but it was like four hours right and if you worked midnights uh your skin would actually take on like a, a milk jug color uh for caucasian skin it was literally like turned white and you'd be able to see the veins and because you wouldn't you weren't exposed to any sunlight because you'd sleep through those four hours and you know about 60 watts was the brightest light your body saw for about two months wow it's definitely not a place you want to stay your whole life. No, I. it, it was weird because it's funny you mentioned the 30 days in, of uh, night. When I moved there, or when I transferred there, it was from West Berlin, Germany. I did the airline transfers, but 
basically traveled straight through. And when I was shown the barracks room that I'd be staying in, or and I was given that room assigned to it, I walked into the room and the first thing I thought was, well, what in the heck's going on in here? I looked at the windows and out of the four window panes, one of them had a thick black lacquer covering it. I mean, it was like dark room lacquer. And the other three were covered with tinfoil so that absolutely zero sunlight came in. And I'm like, what in the heck? And the first thing I thought of was, great, there's vampires here or something, yeah? And I was laughing about it. So I, I was a sun fanatic, so I had to tear, I tore all that off, scraped the lacquer and cleaned it off. And then come summer, I found out why they did that. It's because you couldn't sleep. The sunlight beating in on you. There you are trying to sleep at three in the morning and it's sunlight. <laughs> so now had anybody else in your group that you worked with, had anybody else ever had any of the experiences or, you know, is it just kind of something that happens, you know, every couple of years? Uh... From what I was told that several other military police had heard about that and actually camped out on that road trying to see something. And they, uh, the one guy said that he thought he heard something and then everyone else says, no, must have been the wrong night or, or something like that. But no, actually up there, when I was physically up there, I didn't hear of anyone else. All right. And you did not hear any kind of sounds of a vehicle or anything like that other than... I heard what sounded like suddenly a vehicle. The only way I can describe it with the brakes locked up sliding on gravel. Because that road is gravel and it's 45 miles an hour speed limit because it's a, it's a pretty long straightaway. There's no large curve, no sharp curves. It just suddenly sounded, you know, I heard like kind of like a little bit of rumble. Uh, it may have been louder because, like I said, the radar unit was really screaming. It was loud. I'd never heard a tone that loud. Um, and that's when I heard it sounded like the brakes locked up on a car and the car was just skidding down the gravel. And then I heard like a rumble noise and then a crashing noise. So out of curiosity, the radar units, about how, how much of a distance in front does it actually read? If there's nothing interrupting the signal, they can reach out probably three, I'd say maybe three, 400 yards. But the more movement you have, the less that it'll lock on. Cause like if you have a whole five, six lanes of traffic, it won't lock on to one until they all get up closer and it can uh, differentiate between the the different targets. It was a really old radar system. They don't use that anymore because it's microwave. Well, no, I was just thinking, so, I mean, with that thing screaming like that, your first reaction is going to be to look up to see a car. Oh, yeah. Or to see oh, something. I did. So, so oh, I, I, did. I mean, just yeah. for anybody that may question what you have seen or heard, you would have seen whatever it was Definitely, because of yes. the way that screamed. Yeah, I had a clear field of view, probably, I'd say at least 300 yards. I, I don't think I would have been able to make out anyone's face, but seeing a car on the road, yeah, it would have shown up. 
because the rule of thumb is that they told us in the radar class, they said radar, that X band and the K band radar, they said that's good using it during fog because you can't see something that's out there and it'll, it'll show up. You know, I did not actually see anything, but I, I, that's probably what caused a delay between me throwing the car into gear and going looking for something because I didn't see anything, but I got that tone and there's two things with the radar, with the Doppler and the and the uh, microwave signal. Not only the faster the object is going, but also the closer it is, the tone increases. So I mean, it was loud. I mean, I mean, when I took off in the car, I fumbled with the with the volume on it to shut it off because it was it was loud. I'd never heard it that loud. Well, that's a, a pretty awesome experience to have. I mean, not not to be you at the time, but to be able to, to have that experience and to retell it, you know, so other people won't think they're crazy if something like that does happen that they can't explain. I've gotten, I, after my time up in Alaska and just things that have happened in my entire life, somebody comes up to me with something totally crazy. I look at them and say, okay, I believe it. And I mean, like, <laughs> what do you want me to say? I mean, I've had really bizarre stuff happen. So. Well, why don't you go ahead and tell us about your next experience? The next one, if I'm remembering right, it would have been in January, I want to say of 85. Again, up in Alaska. And... It was uh, right after the uh, holidays. And, of course, we were still working. I think we were still on 12-hour shifts. And I had Area 1, which I absolutely hated that area. Um, especially around the holidays. Because you'd have a lot of domestic disturbances. Alaska's known for consuming a lot of alcohol and having a lot of domestic disturbances. Um, especially around the holidays and without going into a side story, I got my butt kicked really bad in a domestic disturbance. Uh, when I took the husband out in handcuffs, the wife attacked me, kind of got blindsided. So I did not like dealing with those, but I was doing the routine patrol in area one and one of our female MPs, um, I knew her, I'd known her for probably a good six or eight months. Um, she was, she was a good soldier. She knew what she was doing. Uh, you didn't have to look over your shoulder all the time. She was just a really good soldier. You knew where she, she was going to be, where she's supposed to do or be and doing what she was supposed to do. Um, and she could handle herself too. I mean, that was when we first got the female assigned to our platoon. We were like, "Oh boy, we're gonna have to be careful with her," and that. But she could handle herself in a bar fight just fine. We found out when she went in and broke up a bar fight one night. But anyway, she had area two, and one of the security checks you had to do in area two was the ski lodge. 
And then you'd have to drive up the actual ski mountain around the side of it and check the communications tower site. Well, I guess, I don't know if she was on her first or second round of security checks. I want to say by the time of night, probably was on her second round. And I got the signal on the radio. What we would do is key the microphone twice. And then a couple seconds later, key it twice again, which meant go to channel two for just a second. And, well, I apparently didn't catch that, so she actually asked for me to go to channel two, so I did. And she asked me to meet her out at the ski lodge. And it was, it was kind of warm out that night for Alaska in January. It was up to like 10 above zero. So the first thing we were like, oh man, it's going to snow big time on us because it was warming up. Normally it was probably 20, 15 to 20, maybe 25 below zero. So when it got up that warm, 10 above, you knew it was getting ready to snow. Well, I drove out there. I cleared it with the patrol soup. And as I'm driving out there, um, I went out and pulled in and she was parked not too far from the entrance to the ski lodge parking lot. And I looked at this place recently on Google, Google earth on the, uh, bird's eye view. And it is totally different than from what I remember it. There was only like four buildings. One of them was the ski lift building, the equipment rental building, the ski lodge. And then there was some kind of a maintenance shed. So now there's like, I don't know, a bunch of, <clears throat> excuse me, buildings. And the, the woods has been moved back quite a bit. And the ski lodge doesn't even really look like the same building as I remember it. So they could have rebuilt it. But at that time... Um, I went out there and she was parked just inside the entrance to that area. And there was nothing but really dense woods all the way around it. Um, so I seen her standing outside of her car, out of, outside of the patrol car. And I walked up to her and I said, you know, I said, what's, what's going on? And she she didn't hesitate. She came out. She said, somebody is effing with me really bad out here. And for her to say that, and I looked down and she's got her, she had a revolver out in her hand. And I'm like, okay. I says, what's going on? And she says, I hear noises. And I said, what kind of noises? Yeah. And she told me, just be quiet. You'll hear it. And so I shut, shut my car off. Because typically up there you leave your car running or it'll freeze unless you have a, a plug-in point in the parking lot somewhere. All the parking lots had those. So I'm standing there, shut the car off, dead quiet. Kind of heard noises. I wasn't sure because I was an outdoors person up there. I loved going camping, hiking. And I tried telling her, I says, you know, it's just an animal. It's nice and warm out tonight, as it could be a, 
I says, could be a calf or something from a moose walking around, even a bear cub. I said, or even a bird flying in and out of the trees. And she says, no. And I started to listen more and more. And I was like, okay. It kind of sounded like a whistling noise and kind of a moaning sound. And I'm like, no, I don't know what kind of an animal does that. So uh, I told her to get her flashlight. And she said, mine's dead. And then she says, I don't know. I, it, she's, I grabbed it off the rack. And she says, about a half hour ago, it was fully charged. Well, mine took batteries. So I went to my patrol car, got my flashlight, clicked it on. It was dead. And by that time, after I'd heard the noises in the woods, I had my my weapon out. I had a forty-five. Uh so then I was like, okay. So I started my car back up and I turned the floodlights on, the alley lights, which just lit up everything. Because if the ski lodge was open and running, it would have been like daylight around there because of the spotlights and the floodlights they had everywhere to light that whole area up. But when it was closed, it was dark. And there's, I think, maybe two lights on. So... I said, let's walk around, see what's going on, if there's anything. And it had already started to snow. And I mentioned, I says, I said, we're going to get socked in. I says, we're going to catch a lot of snow. And she said, yeah. So we started to walk around the ski lodge. Nothing happened. I mean, we walked around, everything was fine. The doors, the windows were all secured. And... I said, "Have you? did you check this earlier? And she says, yeah, I checked it earlier and there was nothing. And she says, when I drove in out here, she said, I just had the feeling that I was being watched. And I got out of the car and that's when I heard noises. And so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to say anything to her. I was kind of humoring her. And by just agreeing with her. So we finished the security check. And we walked over to the vehicle and she said uh, that she was going to have a cigarette so I had one, we both lit one up and we could hear that sound again and only this time it sounded we could hear every now and then like branches breaking uh, leaves being rustled and it just didn't sound right, I mean you hear the night sounds up there and you become used to them and this was different. This was like, okay, this has got my radar going. There's something wrong. There's something going on. Some, something's out in the woods that's normally not there. So we finished smoking. And I says, I'm going to do another check. And I had wanted to go by myself the first time, but she insisted on going with me. So uh, we went. And the... On the second pass, the and you don't really see it. You can't see it on the map anymore today. That's why I was like, oh my God. As that little offshoot that came out of the, uh, the ski lodge, which was a woodshed, it's gone. It's not there anymore. But there was a stump in the ground and that offshoot, or uh, like a an extension of the uh, actual lodge. And there was a stump there that somebody had put for splitting logs and 
So I was like, okay, and she mentioned the fact that there was an axe, an old rusty axe sticking in that stump. And we were both laughing because she said at least, you know, it's a, if, if it's a serial killer, he's not using an axe. And so we walked back around, kind of laughing, and I remember looking at the foot, footsteps or the footprints, just ours. Well, we got back to the car, heard the noises again. So this time I checked my flashlight again. I was going to put new batteries in it, and it turned on. Well, magically, so did hers. So we decided to walk around the third time. And as we were walking, the noises were a lot more loud, a lot more, like, closer it sounded. Um... Then, as we turned the corner of the extension where the woodshed was, I came into full view with the flashlight on and everything of the of the splitting stump, and the axe is gone. So I, like on autopilot, I drew my weapon, she immediately drew her weapon, and she said, what's up? And I said, the axe is gone, and I scanned around. She was doing like a 360 scan out in the woods, and I shined my light over by the stump. And again, it was just our footprints. And they were starting to cover up with the snow because it was snowing very heavily. And we're like, what in the heck? So she paused with her light, and I paused with my light. I turned my light over to the same spot where she was, uh, where her light was. And she never said anything, and I never said anything, but we're watching. And all of a sudden, there was like a black object, a shape. Uh, I couldn't really make out arms, legs, a head, or anything like that. It was just a black patch. Maybe 75, maybe 100 feet, I'm really not sure. Um, but... With our lights on it, it just, it like scurried up the pine tree and it's gone. And we're like, what in the heck? And we both got quiet and we could hear it like running or moving, however, through the treetops. And the only thing I thought of was that there's like a wooden path or something up there for it to be going through them that fast. Because even if we had wanted to run out there, we would have needed machetes and uh, everything else. Because the brush was so thick. And the thorn plants and everything else you run into up in Alaska. So we were like, what in the heck? And we both agreed we're not going to say anything about this. But we heard like the moaning, a groaning sound. Uh, before this thing went up the tree, and that's what we cued the lights in on. She heard it and was able to spot it first. But we both agreed, said, we're not saying anything about this. But I think it was a few days later, she told me that she had met, or not met, but she had run, she knew this guy from the Bureau of Land Management, and he was native Alaskan. And she said that she had described it to him and he said that he would talk to some of the tribal elders that he was in really good with. And this was, I don't know, probably 
Two weeks later, she knocked on my barracks door and she told me what he had said. That uh, essentially that it was a what translates from their language, that he said it was a Wendigo, which is some kind of an evil spirit that eats people. Or it's a cannibal type thing. And that's what I read in the dictionary. And I'd never even heard of a Wendigo until that, until she had said that. But I was kind of like freaked out on that. And I was like, I never want to go back out to the ski lodge, even a broad daylight again. I mean, it just, after that night, when you're driving out in the woods, it kind of like changed my perspective of how I would look out the windows, you know, as a, as a cop. Like, okay, I'm not just looking into the trees. I'm looking on the tops of the trees now. I said, so that was enough for me. I mean, I never wanted that area after that. So do you know if anybody else has had experiences out there um, in area one? Uh, oh, that was area two where oh, I'm sorry. By the ski lodge. Yeah. Um, yes. A couple of guys said that they had chased something. They don't know, I mean, what the something was. They just said it was dark. And I said, well, you got headlights. You got takedown lights. You know, super bright uh, police lights on your on the police cruisers. I said, they'll, like, hurt your eyes. You can't even look into them. I said, what do you mean it was a, a, a dark object, a black shape? He said, that's what it was. He said, we hit the takedown lights and it went into the woods. So, we... Yeah, there were several people in that area, but none right at the ski lodge that I know of. Because the trails going in and around there, they were infinite. I mean, you could you could probably spend a week walking all of those trails. Some of them led to the campground. Some of them led to the uh, marina. Some of them led into the ski lodge. Some of them led into the fuel storage farm. Um... They just they just went everywhere, and they were I, they were probably sleeping. My guess, because some of them would pull down those trails, knowing there's not going to be anyone out there at night, and they'd catch a half hour sleep, especially on like the twelve hour shifts. So the black shape, it didn't really have any kind of form, Mm-mm. but was it? If you had to guess, like a size, was it something that was? just engulfed the whole area or was it did it have like a like a size i would say more it wasn't like nine feet wide i would say maybe three or four feet wide and i'm gonna say you know because my best estimate would be nine feet tall i mean it it was up there i mean (laughs) it was like what am i looking at it stood out I would assume it's something like you shine your flashlight on. Your flashlight just kind of stopped at the shape. Yes. Like mm-hmm. it, it illuminated everything around the sides of it, but it wasn't something you could actually see through. The best I can tell, no, because it was snowing. Uh, it was. Uh, I was surprised we could even see it with all the heavy snow. I mean, luckily it was in the woods and... The canopy of the trees and everything was breaking a lot of the snowfall. But that's the only reason we were able to see it. If that had been out in the open, 75 or 100 feet away, I don't think we would have seen it. Because it was snowing that bad. 
So it was definitely something that stood out, though. I mean, when you're scanning through there, it 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 was it was definitely something that didn't belong. It, it, that's what we both said. We said, "Well, I don't know if it's supposed to be here or not, and what it was." But all I know is I've never seen anything like it. And I was I was up there for two years. So now I know you know somebody may question. Well, you know, could it have been a bear? I'm I'm assuming there's grizzlies in that area. Um, uh-uh. Because, no, because that pine tree, number one, the pine tree, it scurried up for something. For Even if a, when a bear stands up and it's nine feet tall, you're talking probably five, maybe 600 pounds. Because we had a lot of black bear around there, and that was the average weight of them. And for one to reach up nine feet, that wasn't unheard of. That would be pretty routine. They were big. Um... But what I would have to call into question was the size of the pine tree and something five or six hundred pounds scurrying up that tree. It would have been all sorts of bending and waving. And snow would have been falling off of it like crazy. Because you always have to watch out when you're walking through the woods in Alaska during heavy snowfalls. Because the equivalent of like an entire shovel of snow... uh, shovel full of snow will fall down on you as the limbs give way and bend uh that's it'll happen a lot but something that big it would have had to have been less than a hundred pounds to make it up there without bending the tree and knocking the snow loose it just it didn't make sense how it was moving through the treetops well that's that's kind of what i was getting at so even even say just for shits and giggles say you're questioning maybe if it was a bear right jumping from one tree to the next no as quickly as it was going is not something a bear would normally do to begin with not even if it was a circus performer i don't think an acrobat could have gotten through those trees and if it was jumping from treetop to treetop like you said snow would have been falling down there would have exactly. been there would have been all kinds of things going on so mm-hmm. and then, like I said, I was just, I'm just bringing up questions that somebody may say. Well, maybe it was a bear, and this is this is a way of saying no. There's definitely wasn't a bear. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but a bear would have stood out. Yeah, the bears up there, well, I guess everywhere, will make really unique sounds. You can tell by the sound the bear is making, whether it's curious, whether it's like, okay, what are you? You know, when they see a human being. Um, what we were always told was if they're growling, that's their way of saying, get away from me. But to make a whistling noise or a moaning sound or a groaning sound, no. And, well, the other sound you never want to hear them make is growling and snapping their jaws. That means you're about to be dinner. They snap their jaws because they get their their muscles, like, loosened up, I guess. That's what I was told. (laughs) But... Uh, yeah, bear up there, usually loud sounds will scare them off. And I've, I've, I'd never heard of a bear circling. That was the other thing, uh, that the female MP had told me when I first got there was she said, somebody is circling me. Somebody's walking around me. And I was like, okay. And then that's why we made three 
three walks around the ski lodge because whatever was out there was walking with us. It was just you couldn't we couldn't see it because we didn't have flashlights until the third time. Well, in a way, I think I'd rather take my chance with a bear than a Wendigo. Yeah. <laughs> um, because from, I had, from what I understand about them is they can actually take over you. And then you have that lust for the blood and everything as well. That's so. what that's what she was telling me that that the man from the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, had told us or told her. And he says, Yeah, you don't want to mess with that. He says he says and we're like, Okay. I said, Well, did he tell you how to know if it's out there so we're not like walking around a building? And she's the same thing we heard, whistling noises, human noises, like gro- you know, groaning, moaning sounds, like it's somebody in pain, needs help. And I'm like, great, I'm a cop, and if I hear sounds that sound like somebody needs help, I'm just going to roll up my window and drive off really fast. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, says, I don't know about that. <laughs> yep, and but, apparently they can shape, uh, shapeshift and pretty much take on whatever they want to take on. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a kind of a scary thing to run into. Yeah, all I know is that that brush around there, there's no way we would have gotten through that. We would have gotten stuck in it, maybe. But because uh, one of the things the infantry uses up there that's issued to the infantry is machetes in the middle of Alaska. It's because of the brush. The underbrush is so thick and dense in places. Hmm. Well, and you have another experience correct yeah (laughs) totally different than i guess ghosts or whatever you want to call it um i uh probably in the fall of 85 i i was kind of tired the military police um i got you know when the unit reorganized i got stuck on desk duty and i was like that's monitoring an alarm panel and dispatching cars that wasn't my idea so i uh having breakfast one morning i met a couple of guys that were suit and tie types and up in alaska you only had two two people like that so i figured they were either uh military police investigators from maybe fort richardson or one of the posts that i wasn't familiar with or maybe one of the air force bases or they would have been military intelligence. Well, it turns out that they had done a VIP mission and they were EOD. So they started talking about what they did and they actually handed me a business card, something I'd never seen in the military before. I said, wow, soldier carrying a business card. That's different. But they gave me a business card, so give us a call. So I did and Long story short, I applied, I, w- I was accepted, I went for the interview, passed the interview, and I had to do what was considered on-the-job training, but it was really an assessment phase, where for 90 days you serve with that EOD unit, they want to make sure you're not crazy, that you're stable, and you're the kind of person they're looking for. So it's literally a three-month-long interview. Um, that was at Fort Richardson. So I would have to make the drive between Fort Wainwright and Fort Richardson. 
because my unit that was assigned that I was assigned to in the military police was responsible for all admin with me. They weren't happy that I was leaving the military police corps, so they would never book me any flights on the admin plane. They had like two or three flights a day between Richardson and Wainwright. So I'd end up anytime I needed paperwork, I'd have to drive the uh, 300 and I believe it was 370 miles or 340 some miles uh, between the two bases. Um, Fort Richardson was near Anchorage, Alaska. Fort Wainwright was near Fairbanks, Alaska. Well, I got ready to leave. I had done my three months time and it was getting to the point where, okay, I need to pack up at Richardson and move back to Wainwright so that I can clear any cases that I had, um, do all the admin procedures and everything, get ready to basically transfer and go to the EOD school. So I remember I told them at the EOD unit, I'll leave the key, my key to the building by the coffee maker. And they said, go ahead and make some coffee for your trip. So I did. And what I told them was I was, I'd have dinner and then I would get some sleep and then get up around 10 or 11, whatever time it would be. And I would pack up the car real quick, fill up a thermos of coffee and hit the road. Well, this would have been in, I want to say probably late February now of 1986. Uh, I was all packed, so I went through my duffel bag, had a couple of suitcases, and I put those in the trunk and I put my, put like a gym bag in the back seat, and I had a heavy down filled coat. And I knew that would be uncomfortably warm for that drive. So what I did was bunched up the coat or folded it and sat it on the driver's seat or the passenger seat up front. Because it was, I want to say it was like maybe almost 20 degrees. It was, it was really warm for uh, even Anchorage. And then I thought, I said, well, by the time the car heats up, I said, just the heat from the engine will be enough to keep me warm. Uh, so that's why I put the coat to the side of me, got in the car, and it was it had to have been about 10.30 at night. Um, had the thermos and everything, and I had planned to stop uh, midway, what we always called the midway point between Anchorage and uh, Fairbanks. And it was called Hurricane Gulch. And it was just a deep gorge. And on the, I'm trying to get this, on the north side of the, of the gulch, on the southbound side of the lane, uh, or the southbound side of the road, there was like a parking area. Again, I looked at it on Google Earth, and it looks like it's three times more larger than it was back in 1986. Because if you park there, there's paths that'll let you up to the gorge where you get a really good panoramic view. Uh, 
there's people that have actually gotten motion sickness from looking into the gorge. That's how deep it is. So I'm on the road and it had to have been after two, uh, well after two, probably, I think if I remember right, it was around 2.15. I had the urge, I mean, it's like, I'm not gonna make it to Hurricane Gulch. So there was a pretty good size area that I could pull off onto. And if nobody's driven in Alaska in the wintertime, I mean, we're always used to, I mean, here in the Midwest, we got road crews out throwing salt down and, and uh, plowing the roads continuously. So your major roads are no problem. Your highways usually are really pretty good. Up in Alaska, they do the best they can. Number one, salt won't work up there. When you're talking 20 below zero, nothing is gonna unfreeze or melt that ice. So their roads, you do see pavement sometimes, but by and large, you see huge patches of packed snow all over the roads. And there's speed limits, like on the, uh, the parks highway, uh, I think that's what it was called, where it says 55. At the time it was 55. You're not driving 55, especially at night. If you're doing 40, 45, you're doing really good. So, needless to say, to go about 158 miles, it had been about uh, 3 hours and 45 minutes for me. So I found a spot that was safe uh, to pull off, and I did. And I went out and used the trees. Uh came back, you know, lit up a cigarette, got in the car, and finished the cigarette. I put it out in the ashtray, and I was about 10 miles from Hurricane Gulch. And I, I mean, just, I can't explain it. It was like I had to pull off at Hurricane Gulch anyway. And... I started to think, no, I'm fine. I, I, uh, I just had, you know, I just went to the bathroom. I just had a cigarette. I'm good. The urge was overpowering. It was almost like I'm, I was yelling at myself, stop at Hurricane Gulch, get out of the car, have a cigarette, put your coat on, shut your engine off, lock the door, walk into the woods. All this, you know, step by step, do this, do this. So, there's no other cars. I think I had probably seen in that 150, now it was like 160 miles that I'd driven. 168 miles, I think. I think I had seen maybe 16 other vehicles total. I remember because I counted them as a, as a way to stay awake. And most of them were trucks. Uh, so I'm pulled off in the rest area at Hurricane Gulch and I put my coat on, you know, after, after shutting the engine off, lit up a cigarette, zipped up my coat, locked the car door. And I re that's the last thing I remember was walking into the woods to go to the bathroom, even though I had just gone like 10 minutes before. And the urge was there again. 
you know, like, okay, I really do have to go again. So next thing I know, and I wasn't even really cognizant. I didn't really, it wasn't in the front of my memory that I had stopped, but suddenly I felt like a jolt. Um, kind of like if somebody sneaks up and taps you on the shoulder, how your body will jolt. That was exactly what it was like. Except I'm in my car driving now. And I looked at the clock on the car and it said 4.03 a.m. My coat was folded laying on the passenger seat. And I remember I was just unglued because I was like totally missing something. And then it came back to me. No, you stopped. You got out of your car. I said, well, when the hell did I get back in the car? There's something wrong here. So there was a party store, like a gas station. I, I said, that's up here a little ways. I'll stop. And I never hit that. And I suddenly saw a sign that said Eagle River, 20 miles. I almost slammed on the brakes. I said, Eagle River is a suburb of Anchorage. <laughs> what do you mean I'm about to drive back into Anchorage? I said, no, 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 no. I was 168 miles. Well, minus that, that 20. I says I was 148 miles away from here an hour and a half ago. So... Uh, I hit the intersection at the Parks Highway and everything that, and I went back because there was a gas station there that was closed, and I'd be able to pull in there. And this is all like in two minutes. I I, I was in there and I'm, I got out, and that's when I realized my knife was gone. That was on my uh, holder on my on the left side. And I said, "Where in the hell is my knife?" And I patted, I reached for some cigarettes in my, my shirt pocket. My cigarettes were gone. So I'm like trashing all around through the car looking for my cigarettes. And I grabbed my coat. And there on the seat was my knife, but no cigarettes. So I looked around the car because my first thought was, maybe I had gotten into an accident or I hit an animal or something. And it just shocked me and I didn't realize um, what was going on. Um, so I, I got out of the car with my coat on and it was, it wasn't that cold again. Uh, when I'd stopped by Hurricane Gulch, it was, it was well below zero. It had to have been at least 20 below. Cause when you exhale, you see your, you can see the moisture coming out of your mouth. Like a lot of times in the winter where it's steam. Except up there, you can tell it starts sparkling. It means it freezes probably about a foot in front of your face. So I walked around the car, no damage. And then it dawned on me, I said, wait a minute, the car is cold. How could I have driven 140 miles back in an hour and a half and the engine's cold? So I got back in the car, looked at the gauges, and yeah, it was cold. But then I also looked at the gas gauge and I said, whoa, something's really wrong. I still have more than three quarters of a tank of fuel. And I drove a Renault Alliance at the time and it got about 60 miles to the gallon. It had, I remember it had a 12 and a half mile or 12 and a half gallon tank 
at 60 miles to the gallon. So I knew with the, you know, with the tank topped off, there's no way I'd have to stop for fuel. I'd make it from point A to B just fine. The gas gauge had not moved. It was where it should be for about 150, 160 miles. And I was like, what in the heck? Um, so I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta like try and push it now to get back. And then I thought like, nah, don't worry about it. Cause they don't even know you're coming back yet. So I took, you know, I drove the normal speed. Uh, I pulled out of that gas station parking lot back onto the northbound lane of the highway and, and proceeded on north. And I felt really, really weirded out as I got near Hurricane Gulch. And I was literally almost shaking. And I was telling myself, you're not stopping. You're not stopping. You are not stopping. And I did not stop there. Because uh, I remember when I got to Fort Wainwright, I had to go to the bathroom so bad that I pulled off at the main gate and ran into the visitor center and used their bathroom. And some of the MPs were like, hey, you know, Mike, what are you doing back? I didn't even say anything to them. I just, you know, I ran into the bathroom. Then I came out and I said, oh, yeah, I came back because I got to do all the paperwork, you know. And I says, I got that one case I have to testify at yet. And they said, oh, okay, you know, and so I got my car and I was like, I am not saying anything about this to anyone because number one, I don't know what in the hell happened. And I'm like, I'm sitting there trying to do the math in my head. Okay, 140 miles an hour at an hour and a half. I says, where would that have been on the speed? And I says, no, that would have been, that would have been like 90 some miles an hour. Can't do it on those roads up there, especially in the middle of the night. And I never told anyone about it because the job I was going into uh, required a very high security clearance that you would have to pack, you know, pass a background check and everything. That's where I found that, yeah, they, they go back 10 years and how everyone says that they don't go into juvenile records, they do go into juvenile records. They go back 10 years. So, yeah, they checked at my high school, so I'm always glad I never did say anything about this to anyone. Because my fear was they would have thought I was crazy is I had no explanation for anything that had happened. The, the part that really bugged me the most was, you know, when I got, you know, why did I pull off there? Well, I had to, I felt like I had no options. To this day, that really bugs me because I felt like I had no control over a situation with me. And that just, to this day, bugs the heck out of me. So do you feel like, like, something was putting thoughts into your head it was like somebody had taken over my mind it, it was like they it was like my thoughts but like but not you know it's like okay this thoughts in your head it's your thought you have to do this is what it felt like I mean because I had, like I said I had just used the bathroom about 10 miles prior and I was like, I don't have to go again. And then all of a sudden I had the urge to go again. And I'm like, this is crazy. So when you had that, that feeling of like waking up out of a trance, is that, is that almost what it was like? Like you were in a trance, 
And yeah, it like, was that. Yeah, like maybe like I'd been daydreaming and like I said, somebody comes up behind you and scares you, you know, yells boo or something like that. That's what I felt like. I jolted. That, that would be really hard to daydream, walking back to your car, getting in your car, starting it and starting to drive and not realizing that you were and, driving. And driving 140 miles in Alaska at night during the winter on the snow-covered roads. I did it with a calculator. I've done it with everything, you know, on a long hand. I've done everything except a slide rule. It doesn't make sense. There is no way... I think I came out with like 93 miles, 93 point something miles per hour. You can't do it. Not even today. I don't care what the speed limit is. You can't do that on roads up in Alaska in the wintertime. You wouldn't be the first person that has had that situation. Um, But most people see bright lights or something and, and have missing time which they attribute to UFOs and stuff like that. Yours doesn't necessarily seem like that as much as, you know, you walked into the woods, which maybe you walked into a time slip. Mm -hmm. I had uh, a group that I had belonged to. And one of the people said that it was something that they can warp time and space. They can fold that over. And they said, so no, your car probably never moved. Your car was probably idle the whole time, which is why it was cold. But, uh, and like I said, the gas gauge, because I used to make that trip, uh, which was around, like I said, I think think it was like 358, 368 miles, uh, something like that. Because I had uh, a 12 and a half gallon tank, 60 miles to the gallon. And I would make that with, with just under half a tank of fuel left so when I saw that I was halfway and just a little bit more than a quarter of a tank of fuel left and then an hour and a half later you know voila still I was like how did I drive 140 miles and the gas gauge never moved to this day one of the things I always do when I get in in the vehicle even if my wife is driving and or if somebody else is driving uh, and I, th- I really think you know maybe maybe it might be PTSD or something like that from this incident but I always tend to look at the odometer now and I make a note what's the odometer reading because that night I never did that I never hit the trip odometer which to this day I can I can kick myself to death for not doing I wish I would have well, but I mean, it's a situation where you didn't know you were going to be in that situation. Did you ever find your cigarettes? No, I never did. I had to get a fresh pack out of the uh, gym bag in the back. And I bet you smoked quite a few of them after that. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was definitely. Uh, <laughs> I definitely had a full ashtray when I got up to Fort Wainwright. <laughs> well, I was like, I was nervous. I was shaking. I tell you what. The way gas prices are now, I think I might look for one of those vehicles that you were driving back then. They they were fall-apart cars, but I'm telling you, you couldn't beat the gas mileage. You're like going forever, and the gas gauge is not broken. <laughs> you know, it's like, is it broken? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. 
I think they got. I think the oil companies helped put Renault USA out of business because they didn't last very long. Huh. That was the whole reason I bought it. Well, first thing I want to do is thank you for your service. Thank you. I appreciate you guys putting your life on the line to keep us free. Also, I would like to thank you for coming on the show and, and giving your experiences and telling everybody your experiences. Hey there, I'm Tony Palacio, host of There Is Something Out There, a new podcast dedicated to true crime, the mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. From the beautiful Pacific Northwest, home of Bigfoot and some of America's most notorious serial killers, I'm going to present to you the world's worst crimes, scariest monsters, strangest stories, tall tales, and totally terrifying testimonials. Join me as we discover that the noises you hear may not just be your imagination. There is something out there. You can find me wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, including Stitcher, Spotify, Player FM, Amazon, and Google Podcasts. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of the Stuff of Nightmares podcast. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the subjects I talked about on the show today, you can check out the sources in the show notes on the Stuff of Nightmares podcast webpage or the Facebook page. Remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss an episode. If you would like to share an experience on the show, you can email me at the Stuff of Nightmares podcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on the Stuff of Nightmares podcast Facebook page. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep an eye on that neighbor. You know which one. The weird one. <laughs>